Hello, have you ever performed on stage? Have you ever performed alone on stage? Have you ever wondered what it's like, how performers do it? Well, I just did my first ever solo show, and my guest today, uh, performer, multimedia storyteller, Natasha Ruck, has done a lot of it. So we're going to talk all about stage performance, podcasting, storytelling, and much, much more. So don't go anywhere. Matthew Felix On Air starts now. Welcome to Math Felix on Air, people who create, people who make a difference, coming to you from Wordspace Studios in San Francisco, California. Hope you had a great couple of weeks. I did, as we are going to discuss in more detail with today's guest. Um, this Monday, I was, or last Monday, I did the second of two solo shows at San Francisco's Marsh Theater. And of course, the show was based on my new book, Porcelain Travels. That was here again in San Francisco at the Marsh Theater, and uh, just like the first time, I was a little nervous, but again, I'd already done it once, so I wasn't quite as nervous as the first time, and I think it went pretty well, and like I said, my guest, or I haven't said this yet, but um, my guest today, Natasha, was at that show, so I will put her on the spot later, and she can tell us how it went um, from, from the perspective of someone who was actually in the audience, so like I said, we'll totally put her on the spot. Um, but lots more going on related to my book, Porcelain Travels. A week ago yesterday, I had the honor and unexpected privilege of sitting down with Peter Greenberg, who is CBS News travel editor. And I sat down with him for an upcoming episode of his uh, Eye on Travel radio program. We talked all about my book, Porcelain Travels. And we, we traded uh, bathroom stories from our respective travels. So it was, it was a lot of fun. And like I said, an honor to get to uh, talk with Peter and be on his show. And I think that's going to air nationwide on CBS radio. I think they said April 13th, but I need to double check that. Um, but yeah, like I said, I'm pretty sure that's April 13th, Ion Travel, um, but I'll let you know next week for sure. Speaking of radio, next week, April 7th at 3.35 Pacific, I'll be live on the Travel Guys radio show. And that show is hosted by Mark Hoffman and Tom Romano. And it airs on KFBK AM 1530 and News Talk 93.1, San Francisco, not San Francisco, uh, Sacramento, California. It also streams live, of course, around the world on KFBK.com. So please tune in to The Travel Guys next Sunday, where I'll have a brief chat with, uh, with both The Travel Guys, Mark and Tom, about porcelain travels. In other news, just over, uh, in just over a week from now, I will be headed to Paris for about a month, and I could hardly be more excited to get back to some place I've lived and spent a lot of time visiting, but haven't been to for a few years now. And I'm so excited to have a reason to get back and an excuse to get to spend, like I said, basically almost a whole month there. The impetus for my trip was the invitation I got from uh, writer, filmmaker, and Lit Wings founder Erin Byrne to present at her Lit Wings uh, Paris event, which is on April 11th. I've talked about Lit Wings before. Erin, of course, has been on my show twice before. And, uh, but just to refresh those of you who, uh, who have heard me talk about it before, those of you to whom Lit Wings might be new, basically what it is is each Lit Wings has one writer, one filmmaker, and one photographer, and they talk about their processes and whatever projects they might be working on at, uh, at the moment. And so when Erin asked me to be her writer in Paris, I didn't really have to give it much thought. Uh, but the other people who will be at the Paris event include 
Ernest White II, and he is host of the travel documentary series Fly Brother, which has just been greenlit by PBS to uh, debut nationwide later this year. So that'll be interesting to hear him talk about the, uh, the new series. Also, award-winning photographer and writer Lerna Merch will be on, and she, of course, has been on my show before, and she was just here in San Francisco, but she's going to be coming from Copenhagen to, uh, to Paris for the event. So excited to see her again. And then Tony Alberto Rigatini, who is a poet, playwright, and screenwriter, as well as host of Spoken Word Paris. So if you happen to find yourself in the City of Lights on uh, April 11th, please stop by. Speaking of Paris, I will be doing uh, this show while I'm there, and that's another thing that I was hard at work on this week was lining up uh, my guests for the, the shows I'll be doing when I'm in Paris. They will not be live due to, due to technical limitations of my laptop that I will be taking with me, which is all I'll be using. Uh, but still, I still plan on, on posting them on the, at the regular scheduled time, um, Sunday, 6 p.m. Pacific time um, while I'm over there. My guests will include Aaron Byrne, Litwing's founder, who is, again, the reason that I get to go to Paris. And, but also, that, that'll be one episode. And then also, I will be uh, having author David Downey, who has a new novel out called The Gardener of Eden. And David is an American who's lived in France for many years. And so I'm um, looking forward to talking with him, but also I'll be reading his book this week, which I'm looking forward to. And the third episode that I will be doing from Paris features uh, Mia Funk, and she is artist and founder of the Creative Process Exhibition. And this is an exhibition of uh, different writers and artists, just creatives, and with interviews. Mia interviews these uh, the different writers, artists, like I said, creative people, uh, about the creative process, about their work, their processes. And uh, the project was launched at the Sorbonne, the Paris University, and has traveled and is traveling to 40 leading universities around the world. So we're going to talk about the exhibition, going to talk with me about her own work, which is, which is just really impressive, and uh, just creativity and the creative process in general. So yet another conversation that I'm looking really forward uh, to having. And of course, I'll, I will provide much more on each of those guests as those individual episodes um, come up. So the last thing, though, before today's show is next week's show, and my guest will be author Martha Grover. Martha is an author, poet, and artist who lives in Portland, Oregon. But she's getting ready to do a residency here at WordSpace Studios. And she is the author of the books One More for the People and The End of My Career, which was a finalist for the Oregon Book Awards in Creative Nonfiction. And she's been publishing her zine, Somnambulist, for, uh, since 2003 and is currently at work on a graphic memoir. So I think that's really interesting. I'm really curious about that as a genre. Um, of course, I've heard of graphic novels and memoirs, but I haven't heard of the two being merged. So like I said, that should be, uh, that should be a fascinating conversation and curious to hear more about that process and, and the memoir and how that's coming together. Okay, after this quick message from my sponsor, Wordspace Studios, we'll be back to talk with a performer, podcast producer, and so much more, Natasha Ruck. A quick thanks to Wordspace Studios in San Francisco for sponsoring Matthew Felix on Air. Wordspace's mission is to bring together writers and thinkers of all ages and experiences. Wordspace will soon be offering creative writing workshops, a literary book club, and guided writing groups. And Wordspace is already offering writing residencies. They are submission-based, and they provide writers with room and board for up to one month. To find out more, you can email info at wordspacestudios.com. Natasha Ruck is a storyteller, media producer, and educator. She strives to use text, film, and sound to deepen our understanding of the world in which we live and to foster action. 
Her documentary work has appeared at the MoMA and the Whitney Museum of American Art, as well as on National Geographic, NBC New York, and Link TV. Her podcasting work has appeared on NPR affiliates nationally and locally, and uh, Natasha currently teaches multimedia storytelling at the University of San Francisco, is workshopping a solo performance at the Marsh Theater, as we're going to discuss, and last but certainly not least, Natasha runs DoTellDo.com, which is a storytelling service company. Welcome, Natasha. Thanks. Thanks for being here. Uh, so before we go too far, as I have been doing the past several, week, several weeks, I just want to tell everyone that Natasha and I uh, will take questions at the end, whether it's about performance, whether it's about podcasting, whether it's about anything that comes up in the conversation. And Natasha had said beforehand, anything embarrassing, you're welcome also to ask anything uh, embarrassing. And I will, I will send out a, a sh shout out before when, as we approach the end and are ready for questions. Um, but just keep that in mind as we talk. Okay, so I'm going to take a quick drink because I'm really thirsty. And then I'm going to ask you, maybe I'll ask you first and then I'll take the drink. Um, what does that mean for you to be a storyteller? And let me qualify that because I obviously know what a storyteller is. I had um, NPR storyteller Doug Cordell was on. He's done Snap Judgment, Marketplace, et cetera, and does a lot of stuff in the Bay Area. And with Doug, I talked about, or we talked about, you know, contemporary storytelling. We talked about Moroccan storytelling. We talked about how organizations are starting to bring storytelling into the workplace. So in asking you, I'm familiar with the concept, but I'm just curious because it is, we're hearing more and more about storytelling. It's the first word you used in your bio, and I'm seeing it come up in other bios as I, particularly as I do this show and, and look at people that I might have on. So given all that, um, I'm just curious what being a storyteller, what that all means to you. Yeah, it's, it's really, um, it's a powerful word. Uh, and it's interesting because when I discovered it, uh, it was in English. There is no French word for mm. storyteller. Uh -huh. uh, there's not one word. We, we could be a raconteur d'histoire. Yeah. Uh, or, uh, you know, you, you, you can. But, but it's, it's, there's, there is a tradition of storytelling that is completely different in the U.S. than it is in France. And, uh, and I find it fascinating. Um, and, you know, it's like you, you find these things that you're yourself doing and you're, you find yourself being alone doing it. And then suddenly you enter into a space and you discover there's a whole bunch of people that are doing the same thing that you've been doing in your kitchen or in your weird uh, closet <laughs> uh -huh. um, when so you're been recording doing yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Uh -huh. uh, and and, it, and so, so the word uh, uh, oral storytelling is a very powerful, very uh, deep embedded uh, uh, practice that most people have. And when I teach... I, I really want to help people tap into this because we are all storytellers and this is how we perceive the world. This is how we understand the world. We're constantly seeking for causality and these links that help us understand um, what is happening um, through the lens of a character who pursues an action. And so that is, uh, that is part of how I, s I see myself as a storyteller, which is someone who becomes aware of these stories we tell ourselves. And some of them are empowering and some of them might be uh, harder on ourselves. But just be aware of the stories and kind of understand how they work, how they function, and how to use them to, to create a better world. And at what point did you realize that you were in your kitchen or in your closet recording the stories, that this was something more than just an interest, this was something that you wanted to do and sort of make a big part of, of, of what you're doing with your life? 
You know, it, it's it's interesting. I, uh, I I think it's something that I've always wanted to do and I've always done. Uh, from when I was a little child, I would always be like trying to find stories and tell stories, and and I would be fascinated by dinosaurs, and and we would role play being dinosaurs in the courtyards of the, the schools, and and so it's something that's always been there. And uh, when I would be bored, I would always be thinking about characters that would be going on a quest or doing something, or or I would be looking at a film or a movie, and then I would try to understand what's happening next and guess it. Um, terrible at guessing what happens in <laughs> movies i just do uh-huh, it uh-huh. constantly and um when i uh, i went to france i went to business school oh really and, yeah okay I, interesting i have a french uh, mba oh you do okay yeah. yeah which is not the same as an american one but it's 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 business it's marketing yeah and, uh, there's a lot of storytelling in the business world yeah uh, but then I finished, I graduated, and I started to work, and I wanted to work in film, and I worked in uh, uh, distribution of, of movies. And I, and I was like, what am I doing? I don't want to be selling the movies. I want to be making the movies. Mm-hmm. And so I, uh, I hopped on a plane, and I came to the U.S. where it seemed like it was feasible to, uh, to be working on movies. Uh, and, and, uh, and I did. Uh, you did work on movies? Yeah. Okay. Um, before, because that sounds like a whole other show. So I'd be curious about your work in movies. But before we go in that direction, I want to stay kind of here in this sort of foundational subjects that I'm curious about. And then we're going to branch out into some more specific stuff. But, um, you know, I just said in your bio that you, you teach multimedia storytelling. So, again, sort of in this vein of storytelling in general, can you uh, help those of us who might not know exactly? Because I know multimedia and I know storytelling, but I'm just curious specifically um, what what does that mean? You teach multimedia. Is that we're we talking about podcasts? Is it still part of cinema? Is it where's the overlap? Where's the difference? Kind of what is? How do we define multimedia storytelling? Um, I think that there's different ways to to define it. But the way I I, I teach it is I I have uh, it's a semester based class and I teach students um, how to uh, really it's it's a one on one class so it's a beginner's class mm-hmm. and it's how to begin seeing and hearing stories uh, around you and then turning it into three different platforms. Mm, I have okay. them mm-hmm. write and then I have them tell stories using the power of oral storytelling and uh, the structure to um, uh, basically tap into what are the stories they want to tell. And then we find ways to tell them in audio. So they produced an audio storytelling, which is a podcast format, mm-hmm. and try to understand how the brain works differently when they're hearing a story as to when they're seeing it. And then um, I have them uh, do a video story, which is some of the elements are the same but there's there's a little extra uh, layers of the different types of stories yes there is that's what i learned when i went from doing the podcast which was just on radio to adding the video and that's of course different from the storytelling but still i just learned that it was i thought it would just be kind of turning on a camera but no the presentation changes there're just different considerations and constraints that that you might not consider I'm sorry to interrupt, but I, that just resonated for me. It's like, <laughs> yes, it's not just a question of, oh, we're also going to add a picture. There's, yeah. there's, there's more going on there. And the, the, fu- the funnest part of that, adding the picture, is that the picture might contradict what is actually being said, mm. or it might be complementing it, or it might be reinforcing it. Yeah. And you really get to play with that when you're creating that uh, type of stories. Yeah. Uh, and then I have the students do a portfolio, which is an online portfolio of their work, and kind of think about how they want to be portrayed online and how they want to be seen and how they can use 
online the way you're using it to um, further their art and their goals with what they're trying to achieve in their lives yeah I love that that, that sounds like a great class in all sincerity. I mean, it sounds like you're really kind of touching the bases and getting their feet wet in just those, those main, first of all, you've got to be able to structure the story and tell the story before you even get to the media. Right. Yeah. And then, yeah. And then the audio and then the video. Um, uh, but you said that's just a one Oh one, one Oh one, one Oh one class. Is there more in the curriculum? Is this something that is kind of expanding because podcasts are getting more popular? Obviously all this stuff online is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Is this new in, you know, in the university setting? And is this something that Again, is more coming or are there other courses perhaps already? I'm just curious. So I could teach uh, the class uh, by that. I mean, there's another professor who teaches it as well. His name is uh, Mark Taylor. He's a fantastic uh, visual artist as well as, as film storyteller. And um, uh, so we are both teaching this 101 class. And then there are other professors at the university uh, who teach more advanced classes. Okay. And really, it's like, like I have students like run through corridors and they're like, look, I opened this door. You could do this. But really, will you have time? I don't know. Let's run and look at this other corridor and see something. So yep. uh, I try to find um, activities that they can do that give them a fairly advanced um, glimpse at the art. Um, and then they have to kind of backtrack and do something uh, that matches it. Like uh, one of the first exercises I have them do in audio is I have them record the sound of an entire space and then record three or four little sounds in that space and then record an exchange that might happen in that space and then create the space in which the story is happening. Because I think one of the powers of storytelling is to take us places just mm -hmm. the way you take us to Morocco and um, take us places. And in those spaces, we get to experience something. And so right. I have them like this drop of like storytelling through the setting, through the place where you are in audio, and then do the same in film uh, afterwards. Yep. And I think that's something that you can do that helps them see the potential of something big, but then there's still a lot of little things that they get to learn in the other classes, which are much more advanced. Yep. Uh, Danny Plonick and, uh, teaches one of the class, which is a video class, yep. uh, which where they learn how to have three lights and kind of, uh, create a three point lighting and how to use all the audio equipment. And, I need uh, to take that class. <laughs> I have the third light, but it just wasn't working because I have the skylight above. Right. So that's kind of doing it. But then when the sun goes down, it's kind of not doing it. So anyway, we were talking about my lighting challenges before uh, before the show today. OK, so thank you for that. That's really interesting um, just to see what's being taught and kind of how it's all of this is taking root in academia and, and things like that. But what I would like to focus on for a little while, at least, is live performance, because that's kind of how <clears throat> excuse me, you and I met at a party here, as a matter of fact, and we both found out we were both doing the marsh, and then we just sort of instantly bonded over that. And uh, I went and saw your show, which I really enjoyed, and I'm looking forward to talking about a little bit more here today. And then you came and saw my show. Thank you very much. And um, so so let's we'll get back to some of the multimedia stuff later in podcasting. I want to talk about podcasting a little bit at the end of the show. But um, hello, Susan from Redwood City. Uh, but let's talk about live performance. Like I said, that's, that's what we both just did. You've done it at least three times this month you performed. Yeah. This was an action packed, uh, yeah. months. I, I performed yeah. three times <laughs> and, uh, two different shows. Yeah. And two different shows, which we're going to talk about. That's a question I have because Don't do I wasn't it. doing, no, I wasn't doing three Don't shows. Don't do it. No, I, I was surprised when I, when I saw that you were doing that. Okay. 
But let's, so let's just, again, talk about some basics here. So why, we talked about how you got into storytelling, how it's always resonated sort of from day one. It doesn't sound like there was epiphany. It sounds like you just always had this sort of interest um, in, in storytelling in different forms. Uh, but how and why did you take that and decide, oh, I want to be uh, on stage and I want to be doing my own shows? It's, it's, uh, it's really interesting. It's like, it's a mix of the, the art that you see. So you're, you see performers and you're inspired. Uh, so I was producing a podcast and telling stories uh, in audio form. And then I saw Ira Glass and uh, Jada Boomrob and Robert Krolich from a, a, a radio lab. And they were experimenting with telling the story through audio recordings on stage. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, that sounds like I have some material that would be good for that. And and when, when you create, when you're a writer, when you're a, a podcaster, it's fairly lonely uh, in the sense that you're, 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 you're trying to figure out how something is going to appear in an audience mind, but you're just guessing. And uh, so I started and I took a class at the, the Marsh with David Ford uh, to see what it would be like. I was also interested about it as a teacher to hear the feedback, the type of feedback that someone would give for that. Yeah. And I had material from a, a memoir that I'd been working with uh, one of your pre previous guests, uh -huh. uh, uh, Nona Caspers. Last week's guest, I think, or two weeks ago, my last guest. Yeah, two weeks ago. Yes, hello, Nona, if you're watching. I loved having Nona on the show. She was amazing. And I'm amazing. jealous that you got to work with her. Yeah. Yeah. I, I really am uh, very lucky. And um, uh, yeah, I, I just uh, kind of stumbled upon it uh, and really really enjoyed it and it, it was not at all what I expected like I, I thought I was going to be playing some of my radio clips and then um saying a few things and playing more radio clips oh. and um I, I think I, I sent you I, I worked on a, a show uh, about veterans right um that uh was a, a producer named Sandra Clark uh, uh also uh and we turned that show into a stage uh event uh, and and it was really very powerful mm -hmm. and that's part of what we did was some of it was stage and some of it was clips and i really enjoyed doing that and so I expected to do something similar but now i'm doing a full-on uh, right. performance right. where instead of playing the audio clip of the characters or the music that i recorded i'm actually singing and <laughs> performing the characters and acting like surprise someone else. surprise big surprise yeah. yeah well and i think that's part of the excitement of all of this kind of stuff right so i never expected to do a podcast at all it happened and two weeks later the opportunity presented itself two weeks later i was doing one never expected then to go to video never expected to be doing my own stage show and I think when those things kind of come up and you realize, oh, damn, this is a lot more than I anticipated. But that's also part of the excitement. And that's inevitably where the growth comes from. Right. You know, I mean, I was completely outside of my comfort zone doing the, the first marsh. And then after I did it, I felt so much better. Same with the podcast. I thought, who am I to ask these people questions? Can I keep a conversation going? Blah, blah, blah. But through doing these things that initially we don't necessarily anticipate and we, you know, you thought you were going to have half of your show recorded. And instead, you're up there for the full 20 plus, and you're actually doing a much longer show, I think we're going to talk about as well. Um, so anyway, for me, that's part of the excitement of this. But one thing you said I want to, before I forget, you said sometimes it's lonely. Why did you choose to do solo performance versus ensemble, like join a stage troupe or, a, you know, a theater troupe or something like that? So I have been a part of a troupe. You did both, uh, okay. A long time ago, when I was in New York, I've been part of an improv uh, group. Okay. And so uh -huh. I did improv for four years in New York, uh, part of Gotham City Improv. Oh, cool. And I took classes there, and I took classes in, in comedy there. Uh, 
really an awesome um they're an awesome company yeah and uh and so i I was i really love improv i think improv is one of the keenest tool that you can have as a writer to learn how to structure a story and how to kind of understand how to paste the information for your audience and i really enjoyed doing that um but I guess the, one of the impetus to, to do this was I need to get my work seen. I need to be forward-facing instead of having all of these projects that I'm working on that are my own projects. And how do you become forward-facing? How do you get published? And um, I think that the the stage... setting foot on stage for me was the equivalent of getting published Mm -hmm. and that was something that I could put a deadline on I was like my goal is to have something on its feet in front of an audience that will be the same as a publication so I had control over the one thing which was the date in which I was performing at the end of the class and I was like that's it that's your your goal is to be published that will be the form in which you will be published Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and I think I think it's something that works for most artists is like when you get something that works well and you get that little validation of it works, then um, you keep going towards that validation. Mm-hmm. And I, th- I think that's why it's super important to to seek places where you get to be seen and you get to, um, to see how people react mm-hmm. so that you can keep moving forward because you got that feedback of what it is that you're doing. Excuse me. And the thing that I learned, even from just doing readings, okay, never mind doing the show, and it's even more, more the case, I think, when you're doing a show like this, but the thing I learned right away with readings, and because you have humor in your show, I have humor, obviously, in my show, and I find that getting that feedback, particularly as it relates to humor, is even more important, because I was just so surprised when I first started doing readings just a couple years ago, you know, when I would read something that I thought was funny and get no laugh, or then I would get excuse me, a laugh at stuff that I didn't realize was funny. And, and of course, lots of times I would get the laugh when I thought I was going to get the laugh. But just getting that feedback live, you can do your best at home alone in your office. But until you're on stage, um, you don't really know. It's just invaluable. Invaluable. Yeah. And I found that the first time I had a reading, um, I, uh, I heard the laugh. And it actually changed the writing that I was doing. Uh, afterwards when I afterwards. was writing uh-huh. yeah. I was writing for the laughs and I, it shifted some of the work that I was doing towards things that would be funnier because a laugh is like a very genuine reaction that you can get from an audience and it's uh, immediate feedback of what you're doing yep. and so there was something extremely extremely uh, satisfying in that extremely couldn't agree with you more I actually and then sometimes I also had a thing and I'm not I'm not going to say too much about this because well so I had a thing in my, cause you came to my second show in my, and I, I had to rewrite something because I had it. Well, I can, I guess I can't explain this. I had a thing, a, a reference in my book to Michael Jackson and his pet chimp bubbles. Okay. Well, I wrote that, I don't know, two, uh, a couple of years ago. I mean, that's been yeah. written a long time before this latest wave of things. Well, so I said my reference, which had nothing to do. There was nothing, there's no sexual innuendo there, but as soon as I said it, I got, Ooh, and then I, on stage live, I put two and two together and I thought, I never even thought of it being interpreted that way because, again, I had written it so long ago. Yeah. I had, in my mind, there just there wasn't even remotely that association. But again, only because I did it live, that was the only way for me to learn, oh, people are going to make this association that didn't even occur to me. 
And I'm sure it would have occurred to me if it if I were writing it now because it's in the news and things. But just another really interesting way that that live feedback is invaluable. So I changed it. You didn't hear that joke in the second show. Well, you did mention bubbles, but it was a different context. I did. But see, and then I went someplace else to a joke that completely failed. No yeah. one laughed because they couldn't tell if I was being serious or joking. Anyway, so much learning live on stage. Yeah, And that's why the Marsh uh, and uh, Monday night at the Marsh is so great. Because yes. it's fairly accessible and you can go there and you can try your material in front of live human ears. Yeah. And a lot of people kept saying, are you doing the same show the second time? And my understanding was that that was largely why you do it a second time, ideally, unless you've already done your show elsewhere, perhaps. But it's to see, OK, what worked the first time, what didn't, and then tweak things and see you know, how it goes the second time. And so that was the one example. I didn't really change anything else, but that was the one example um, where that was a learning I never saw coming that was really important and good to know. <laughs> okay, so speaking of shows, speaking of the Marsh, I saw your show uh, and really enjoyed your show. You're good for nothing. Okay, I'm gonna. I have to say this title slowly, people, because this is a long, uh, impressive title, and I can't just rattle this one off. So, you're good for nothing. I'll milk the cow myself. Okay, uh, so that's like I said, that's when I got to see you perform. It's funny on the one hand. But it's also, you also tackle some serious issues, right? So there's gender, memory, family dynamics, um, getting older, and of course the importance of good chocolate, which um, I could not be on the same page with you more there. But first off, let's talk just quickly about the title because it's very attention grabbing, which is great. That's a large part of the point. But what else can you tell us about the title? Um, thank you, Bruce Patchman. <laughs> Um, for the title, uh, oh, oh, so okay. <laughs> um, this is yeah. this is so this is going to be my hour long show yeah. that I'm going to do uh, at uh, the Exit Theater as part of the Fringe, and um, so I've moved on from the 20 minutes piece that I have, and I'm going to build it as a, an hour long show four times this September, and that's when I'll need all the audiences <laughs> that I can do. I, I was very lucky to get uh, that spot at the Fringe, yeah, um, but before that. The story was called La Vie en Rose uh -huh. because uh, there's a, a thing that happens in it that involves a song. Uh, usually I describe it as, yeah, as a chocolate uh, uh, singing and Alzheimer is the, the story. Yeah. Uh, and so um, I wrote it as La Vie en Rose and, and then I performed it for La Cocina. Um, which is a fantastic nonprofit in San Francisco uh, um, that helps women, uh, immigrants, and um, uh, refugees develop f businesses around food. Okay. And um, they are, have this amazing series of events where you get to eat amazing food, and then you hear stories that are about food, but really allow you to have a deeper understanding of how food is made and how food is shared and, uh, and what it takes to make a life um, as an immigrant in, in San Francisco and a chef. And um, I performed it at the Brava Theater as part of this event, and that's a six-minute version of the story. And there was called uh, All is Fair and War and Chocolate. Yeah, that's, that's what I saw in the clip you gave me that had that title. So it's had a lot of titles, exactly. actually. Yeah. Uh, but then, uh, and that performed this, this is a six-minute version. It has no singing, and it's just the core chocolate uh, uh, Alzheimer part of the, of okay. the story. Okay. Um, but then I, I got a spot at the works uh, theater, uh, stage works. Yep. And uh, 
Bruce was basically telling us, well, the title, you should have a title that sounds like something else. And how do you find a title? You look at your work and you find a line in your work that sounds great or that is uh, arresting. And yeah, so that's a good word, arresting. Yeah. 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 And so I read my piece and I looked at all um, all the lines that I really liked. And I was like, oh, I could call this. Um, uh, uh, it involves a lot of lying, uh, which is another line that I have in the, the piece that I like a lot. But uh, that line... You're good for nothing. I'll milk the cow myself. <laughs> uh, it's one of the strongest, funniest line I have. And it, it kind of c- encapsulates um, some of the, the, the madness that happens when, uh, you know, time runs out. Yeah. And uh, kind of becomes this complicated thing that you have to deal with. Yeah. I think it's a great title. Mm-hmm. So I think, I think third time's the charm. Um, and so before we go much further, we have a clip of your performance and it's just about a 60 second clip and I'm just going to set this up. Um, this is, so you're 13, it's your 13th birthday. You're visiting your grandma and there's a box of chocolates that, um, you were hoping was for you for your birthday. It's sitting on the windowsill. Your grandma's not giving you these chocolates. And so you finally decide to ask her, you're getting ready to leave. You finally decide to ask her, oh, you know what the deal is with the chocolates. And I think... I think that's it. Yeah, I think that's the setup. So here is a quick look of Natasha performing. Tell me the title again. I scrolled <laughs> past my notes. <laughs> You're good for nothing. I'll milk the cow myself. That's right. Here we go. Mimi, what's that box on the windowsill? Oh, that's a little something for your cousin, Anthony. Uh, watch her face and she's smiling. I know she has bought the chocolate for this moment. She knows I know. That makes her smile some more. (laughs) I come home upset, so that night my father calls his mom, and I eavesdrop on the phone. Really? On her birthday? Really? And I hear my grandmother yell back on the phone, C'est quoi son problème à la petite pisseuse? What's her problem, the little pisser? (laughs) Now, no one in France says pisser. Uh, That's an insult my grandmother invented. Okay, so your grandma was good at making up insults that don't even exist in the French language. Um, and we've, so we've kind of alluded now, but can you just give us a quick synopsis of the plot? Because we've, like I said, we've kind of come at it from a whole bunch of different angles, but we haven't really said what it's about necessarily other than chocolate and your grandma and some dementia or Alzheimer's. Uh, but for those, can you just give us a quick synopsis and tell us also why you chose this story as, as the one that you wanted to bring it's, your first, it's going to be your first full-length performance, I think, right? So why did you choose this one out of all the stories you could have told also? It's a strange thing. Uh, it's just like, you know, you push a door and that door opens and you just keep going. I don't think that would be the story I would choose to tell. Um, it, it's a fraught story. It's a story of a war uh, that's kind of several generations uh, of war between my mom, my grandma, and, uh, and I guess me. And uh, and really, kind of, where do you find yourself uh, when uh, when with the passage of time, and how 
things change, people age, you grow up, and how do you reconcile yourself with things that have happened to you? And how do you come to understand others as people who are actors in their own stories and not just like background characters in yours? And how can you find a certain power in, in seeing them as real people? And so this is, I guess, for me, this is a, a story is an act of empathy uh, towards uh, uh, moving away from me as the main character and towards understanding my grandmother as 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 a character herself. Mm-hmm. Um, this isn't the story that I would really want to tell. I think, but you mean you mean if you were to choose one today, if mean? I were to decide, like, oh, what story do I want to tell? Yeah, but I think that this a lot of the work happens like that. It's just you start working, you start writing, and then things kind of fall into place in a way that you haven't fully controlled or chosen. Yep. But it happened. I get it. No, I mean, I've said with two of the three books that I've written, that's kind of how it happened, particularly with this last one, you know, with the Porcelain Travels book. I sat on half of the stories for 10 years because I didn't want to be known as the bathroom guy. But then people, you know, friends and family who had read those stories early on kept saying, when are you publishing your bathroom stories? When are you publishing your bathroom stories? And I finally had to say to myself, well, if people are still talking about them all this time later. It must have resonated. And again, that door just kind of came open and I could have sort of slammed it shut, but it was really... I was look. I was trying to figure out what my next project was. It just kind of naturally, organically happened, and I just went with it. And I realized, oh, you know, in the ten years that have intervened, I have a whole bunch more stories. So this really makes sense, even though I was never planning. And I say that at the beginning of the show, you know, I was never planning on on, on turning those stories into a book. But I'm glad they did. And I'm just like I'm sure you're glad that this is, even if it's not what you would have intellectually chosen. I mean, you're obviously throwing yourself, you know full into it and I'm getting a lot out of it as is the audience. Um, so yeah, go. Yeah. 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 And I love that you say throwing yourself full into it because, um, I love that's also what you're doing. And you know, (laughs) like uh, when you were talking earlier about, Oh, I'm going to be performing and I'm going to be doing this and you're performing, uh, in a a very revealing, lovely, uh, bathroom. (laughs) And and so you're, you're not just doing this thing, which is, which is hard, which is to step alone on a stage and believe that for 20 minutes you have something that can entertain people. You're doing it with, uh, you know, half of the clothing that you're wearing right now <laughs> and uh, and I think that there's something about that movement of the doors open I'm going to go into it but it's also I'm not just going to like put my little toe and kind of test the water I'm going to dive yes yes absolutely and for me particularly you know wearing the robe wearing the um what's it called the bathing cap or the bath cap the shower cap uh And even just telling these stories, you know, because I do, I don't get graphic, but I am explicit in these stories about some of the things that happen that are really embarrassing. And a couple of the stories I looked at before I published them and I said, you know, to myself, this is revealing more about myself than I necessarily want to share. And I don't even mean just in a biological process sense. I mean, in just in like situations I'm willing to put up with and different things. And then, so for me, a lot of this became as is so much of whatever we're doing, putting out there. Uh, whether it's my novel, whether it's the bathroom book is the best example, but even, you know, doing the podcast where there, for me, there's a lot of putting the ego aside and just, yeah, if it's going to be good for the work and it's going to be fun and people are just going to go with it. If I wear the bathrobe and wear the silly shower hat, then just do that and like get over myself and just do it for the work and have fun with the work and, and yeah, just throw ourselves completely into it. Um, I had other ideas for like having a bathtub on speaking of getting into it, of having a bathtub on stage and that kind of stuff. Um, But uh, that was a little more, I think than I could handle technically at the marsh, but maybe if I do my own longer version of this, maybe we'll figure something like that out. 
Um, but speaking of humor, and again, because you bring a lot of humor into your piece, but it's also very serious at points. You're also talking about some of these other themes that I just mentioned that are very serious. Alzheimer's, I mean, it doesn't get much more serious. So was it challenging for you to balance the humor and the, the serious aspects? Or, and if, how, how did that happen? So I... I um I I, uh, I approach the work as as I'm doing it as it's an audience oriented experience. So I I want the people in the room to experience something, and and I I, I basically like there's something cathartic about it. Uh, there's something about uh, moving from one emotion to another to another. And I think uh, both the, the pieces that I have really have this kind of evolution of different notes that are being hit and there's some very very funny things there's some very dark things yeah and a lot of my humor uh is is like finding the humor in these dark moments uh because this is this is what we do and and then there's a, 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 a certain amount of emotion but complexity and i think i really like to um to play with this format because it creates a moments in time when something happens on stage in front of you and you're kind of left to be the interpreter of it and you you're left with the resonance of what happened at the beginning and your own emotions and how you maybe uh, rooted for one character and then you changed your perception of what was going on as as it happened and there's really so it's humor but it's also a whole package of an experience of moments in life Mm -hmm. and so i think i think what i'm hearing is you didn't consciously try to plan the humor versus the serious it just you just kind of went with it and because it is a reflection of life both elements just work themselves in am i oversimplifying is Uh, that uh, probably a little bit because it's 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 a very like the the piece that you saw is is a piece that I worked on for a very long time, uh-huh, uh-huh. and it, it existed first as a written format, as a memoir piece that I, I worked on with Nona uh, Caspers and also uh, uh, Dana Clatter, is another uh, author who read uh, some of of the work that I, I did and gave me feedback. And it's really this kind of uh, so I know the beats of the story, I know the things that happen, I've lived through them, and there's these things that have astounded me. Uh, there's the moment when uh, I'm with my grandmother uh, and um, like I found myself uh, being furious that she's being given bad chocolate and that is a moment that when I even when I was living it I found hilarious even though I was angry right and and it was just like such one of those little uh, Nona Caspers would talk about those little moments uh, uh, where you you see something that's happening and you notice yourself and you see yourself doing something weird Mm -hmm. something that surprises you and so i i know these moments were there and uh i have uh this specific piece i have issues when i perform it because it i find it hilarious and um the the version that i performed the longer one i sing in it Mm -hmm. and i don't want people to feel sorry about me as a little natasha 13 years old with her grandmother who's not uh, giving her chocolate, chocolate. Uh right? There's something really funny about being 13 and really wanting chocolate and being (laughs) in that room with someone who has that chocolate, knows you want it, and is taking gleeful pleasure at withholding it. Yeah. Um, But every other time I perform it, 
the audience feels so sorry for me. Uh huh. Uh huh. And the 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 Bravo one that you played, the audience was laughing from the very first moment, and all the moments of cruelty were funny. Yeah. Yeah. And the show that you saw. The audience, I felt, I felt them. They were with me all along, but I don't think they thought it was funny. I think they really cared and they wanted to care for me. And I, I don't want that. <laughs> yeah. I, I'll take it. I'm, I'm happy and I'm grateful for it. But I'm like, okay, what is the thing that I do? Because it's the same text. Yeah. What is the thing that I do as a performer, or is it something that's happening unique in the moment yep. that turns something from from um, poignant? too funny yeah no and so these these are a couple questions i was gonna we were gonna get to later but since you brought them up i definitely want to talk about these so a couple things one is um you know we talked about this off before i can't remember when we but before before the show or another time maybe after your show that night i can't remember when but just this um just exactly what you just got since saying is that the same exact text can produce and a different audience can interpret those things very differently And so then how do you, how do we as the presenters, as the people who are, you know, the actors or whatever, uh, the storytellers, you have to look at, okay, well, what was it that I'm doing differently in these times? Or I'm wondering sometimes too, if it's just the audience, maybe it's not necessarily us because, so I've only done this twice now since high school and I've only done this solo stuff once or, you know, twice at the marsh. But as soon as I walked out the second time for my second show, I felt immediately as if as if I'd almost hit some sort of wall. Like this was an audience that was not just intuitively, but I felt it and I wasn't expecting it. I wouldn't have even known to imagine it, that this was an audience that was going to be harder to win over. I didn't feel like the sort of open arms that I felt the first time. Now, very quickly, the audience started laughing and we got into a rhythm and I felt like I connected with them. But it was interesting. I was shocked for a second, again, not having much experience doing this, at how different just energetically that audience felt when I walked out there. So then when you bring up this fact of just saying certain things and getting different reactions, very different reactions, then some of it, I'm sure, is the storyteller. But I wonder how much is also that there's something about... And I, you always hear, if you go see a band play, right? Sometimes they'll say, you've been a great audience. And I've always just kind of brushed that off and assumed they're just being nice. But now I get audiences really are different. So any thoughts on maybe the audience playing a role there? And maybe it's, what are your thoughts? Because again, you've done this more than I have. Um, it, it's, yeah, it's um, the nature of this work is that thing that you felt when you, you had that connection with the audience. And that is what we're doing. We're, it's like, a, like clay, if I dare say so. <laughs> um, I think you do say so in a different piece, <laughs> exactly, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. But it's like you're, you're kind of molding something that is shared between you and the audience. And it's like, it's much more, uh, it's not transactional, but it's an exchange. And mm-hmm. it's like, uh, when uh, I first started taking the, the class with David Ford, he would say, uh, say your line, like you're saying to your audience, and you're saying, of course you agree with me, Right. Uh, or you're saying, oh, you're that one who does that, right? And having, like, so your line are not your lines. They're part of a dialogue that you're having with the mm-hmm, audience. Mm-hmm. And and so you have to have that dialogue with the audience. You have to have that ability to sense them and to sense where they are so that you can meet them and that you can serve the story in a way that is the best way to kind of 
serve it. And I guess you have experience from from uh, being on stage as a younger person, and so you can feel it amazingly. Like as soon as you stepped in, yeah. What did you do when you when you started the uh, theater when you were younger? Uh, well, in sixth grade, I was I was in a musical, and then in high school, I was in the musicals and the normal plays, and just yeah, yeah. Yeah, must be an yeah. interesting thing to have had that. I think it's a it very... It helped. It definitely helped. And I sang a lot growing up. And so I know to breathe from the diaphragm and how to project and all that kind of stuff I had. So that was that was one huge advantage for me going in, never having done this before, this specific sort of storytelling. Yeah. Never been on stage by myself in this sort of way. Nonetheless, I did have the acting experience, even if it was 30 years ago, the acting experience, knowing how to, again, project, sing, you know, use my voice, my gestures. I just, I talk with my hands anyway. So all of the kind of basics I had, but but still I had to turn it into something. Yeah, but it's interesting. It's like, because when you talk to a non-performer, which I have been for a lot of my life, I am not a performer. I'm Uh a writer who has found a door, pushed it and is is walking further. Uh Um, It's like you, you, a a non-performer is going to say, how do you memorize your lines? Uh-huh. And and it's going to be like think, thinking about these like technical practical, things, yeah. practical, even the diaphragm, uh, like how do you project? Yeah. But the thing is, it's the craft comes from a different place. And, and that's the place that I'm trying to learn to really inhabit. The craft comes from being in touch with your emotion while you are telling the story and being able to envision the story that you're telling and be in that moment inhabit of the story. It. Inhabit, yes, it inhabit it on stage yeah, yeah. in front of the audience so that they are with you inside that moment. So you're, right. it's like uh, Stephen King says, like writing is, is uh, um, um, telepathy. Uh-huh. You write something and you make people think it. Uh-huh. And I think like being a stage performer, it's much more like tele- teletransportation. And mm-hmm. so you're taking people with you, time traveling with you in those moments. Yes. And it's like uh, a lot of the lines that David Ford gives me is like, um, okay, uh, what is the person seeing? How are they seeing it? Um, how's their backs feeling? Mm-hmm. Um, how do they think about people seeing them in that space? And uh, so I, I have, I do characters and I am a narrator. And so as a narrator, I am in that moment with my audience and trying to go like, you're with me, right? right We're right. doing this together. Right. But then when I'm uh, performing my characters, I am... The characters. The characters. And what I'm seeing or supposedly seeing on stage is what that character would be seeing in that moment. Yes. And that's my way of of creating that space. And that's the real craft of it. And everything else, they're tools, but the real craft of it is to be able to um, feel that um, reaction from the audience that you were feeling mm-hmm. and then create these entire like spaces and moments for them to... To join in and join in. Yeah. Okay, two things. Actually, I have 20 things I can say. Two things I want to <laughs> say before I forget because I'm having lots of things going off here. Is one, so some point I found out about this phenomenon whereby you may have heard this and I don't know the, how to, the name for it or whatever, but you know that if we watch someone take a drink of water, then we have the same physiological reaction yeah. as, right? So that's part of, I think, what why theater in film and whatever, when we watch something, our, our body doesn't, our brains don't necessarily know the difference that that's not quote unquote real and it becomes our reality. So I just love that whole idea. Two is though, I, I was really thinking as you were talking about this idea of connecting with the audience and feeling that connection. One of the big revelations for me when I was performing was as soon as I walked out the first time, 
again, not having done theater and never having done this myself, I walked out not knowing what to expect. And for the first 60 seconds to two minutes, I was nervous and trying to make sure I was in control. And then all of a sudden I had this revelation where I felt the connection with the audience. And I was like, oh, I'm okay. I've got this because we're, our, we're, we're interacting. And I had never felt that before. Never felt that before. You know, before when I was younger, it was all just, God, you know, I hope I don't forget the lines. And it was all focused on that. And this time I thought that's what it was going to be about. I was still worried about remembering my lines and hoping it would all work out. But I got there and had this completely unexpected, just this wave. The audience is laughing. The lights weren't so bright. I could see some of the people, which I thought would be distracting, but actually it helped confirm that I was connecting. And then after that, I was way more relaxed than I was those first couple of minutes. And then of course the second show was, was that much, um, I won't say easy, but easier relatively. But so one thing I want to do, I want to show quickly, um, a clip from my show. And then while the clip is playing, I'm going to try to organize the 20 questions that I have that have just come out of our last couple of minutes. Of course I have my notes, so I'm going to choose something, but so the clip I'm going to show is, um, so for people who haven't watched or listened to the podcast before, those of you who have already know all this, I'll try to be brief, but my show is based on my new book, porcelain travels, um, which is humor, horror, and revelation in on and around toilets, tubs, and showers and counted on my travels. And so, uh, the clip that I'm going to show is just from the first story that I tell in the show. Um, it's just this really quirky place that I've stayed in Barcelona, not once, but twice. I don't admit to that in the show, uh, <laughs> but I actually love this place, even though it's super quirky. So let me just show you this, uh, quick, I think it's just like 90 second clip from my show, Porcelain Travels at the Marsh. My experiences living in and traveling to more than 50 countries, oftentimes some of the most unforgettable experiences we have are either in or somehow related to the bathroom. In fact, I've had so many unforgettable experiences in, on, and around toilets, tubs, and showers that my new book, Porcelain Travels, is all about. Like the place I stayed in Barcelona. A little refuge high in the sky, even calling it a studio, was a bit of an exaggeration. For my needs, however, it could not have been more perfect. The tiny space was just big enough for a full-size full -size futon. There wasn't room for any other furniture. A couple of feet from the futon, there was a fireplace covered in smooth whitewash. To the left of the fireplace was the kitchen, or rather a hot plate and a sink and a toilet. Now, European kitchens often have washing machines, but I've never seen one with a toilet before. Being an open mind, however, I immediately saw the advantages. I could snack while relieving myself. <laughs> if I wanted to, in fact, there was nothing to stop me from having a full meal. The mini fridge was just an arm's length of a commode. Scarcely moving a muscle, I could complete the entire digestive process for days at a time. <laughs> Seriously, no need to go anywhere as long as that mini fridge was full. <laughs> the implications for my productivity were staggering. So that clip was from one of uh, five stories that are in my show. And so for me, the challenge was, you know, adapting a book. It was great because the book already existed, but there are 25 stories in the book. And so I had to choose which stories and then how could I take excerpts out of those stories that without the further con or the, you know, the complete context of the full story and still have those tidbits, you know, be able to stand on their own. And then how do I string all that together? Um, which I think I did okay, but what, so how do you, because again, structure, so speaking of structure, you jump around in time, you don't jump around, but you jump ahead in time and you really do cover a lot of ground in these relationships in your show. So what are your thoughts on just some brief thoughts on how you structure, especially something like that? 
So it's really interesting for this piece because um, I have a six-minute version of it. I have a 15-minute version of it and I have a 20-minute version of it and now I'm working on the hour-long at the, f the, uh, the fringe uh, challenge that I uh, set myself. Yep. And uh, so the way I think about it is really I go at this idea of beats and I'm like, so why is this moment here? What does the moment do? How does it tell the story? And what does it move forward? What is its emotional charge? And um, I, I have uh, I, I have a moment of revelation uh, where I I have a, a better understanding of of the character that I'm, I'm I'm dealing with, and the question is where does that moment happen? And that so I have. I have like two or three moments that I know are uh, are part of the story, and I can tell myself this is the arc of the story. Once you can name what your story is, this is a story of a, a, a transference of empathy, for instance. Um, then you can kind of plot what are the moments where there's no connection, there's a first connection, and then there is a moment of understanding, and then there is a moment of caring, and you could you could basically identify those moments in the story and then you get to see how they are placed and which moment is carrying this which moment is doing that um uh, the, the, so in, in the story specifically i have all of these moments are um weighted down by vivid concrete sensory things that have happened in specific moments in time and these things are linked with chocolate and with singing great links and uh and that's the thing is like i could tell the story with just the chocolate and having the chocolate carrying these emotional moments or i can have it with the singing or i could have it with the singing and the chocolate which is the longer version um and so that is the structure is like having the intention of what what's happening and and kind of having a, an ability to name it and it takes a while to be able to name it mm -hmm. um and sometimes someone else is going to name it for you uh david ford is pretty amazing for that um and so structurally i know that as as a character my my action is going to hit those moments my emotion is going to hit these moments and what I want the audience to experience is going to have these moments. And then I go like, okay, I have to cut what can go, what can stay. Yep. And at the very least, so I have a, you know, you have three moments, I have five moments, I have seven moments. It always has to be an odd number, okay. uh, doesn't it? <laughs> um, but so I can have one, two, three, and then I have a whole story beginning, middle, and end. Uh, but I could have my five or my seven. And so... I, I try to look at it as a modular thing and you take the whole thing and you take it out and then you look at it without the whole thing. It's like, does it still work? Mm -hmm. And okay, it works, but I need to add a little bit of something that maybe happened somewhere else and I kind of like put it back in and am I okay with, with doing this? And if I am, then uh, is it being truthful to what happened and to what I experienced and to what I remember? And if that works, then the structure will stand. Yep. Okay, in the interest of time, because we've already been talking for an hour, and I have lots more to talk about, but I really want to talk just quickly, uh, again, in the interest of time, but I don't want to not talk about this. So Interpret This, which is the other um, show that you're doing, 
because again, one show in one month wasn't enough. You had to do two and perform them a total of three times. Uh, but just tell us really quickly the concept between, b- 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 behind Interpret This. And I have to say that I read the script, or at least an excerpt from the script. Thank you for sharing that. And I did. I laughed out loud repeatedly. And, but I was also uncomfortable at times. So again, we have this sort of this theme of having both sides of the coin, if you will. Uh, and I loved the ending. Absolutely loved the ending. So can you just tell people uh, who aren't familiar with it, obviously, just really quickly a high-level plot um, summary of that of that piece? Um, so I work as an interpreter. It's actually like the, the best performances I've had were as an interpreter on stage, and it's improvised, right? Someone's saying something, you're repeating what they're saying right. and trying to say it how they said it with their voice and their intonation, translating from uh, French to English and English to French back and forth and back and forth and um i uh so i probably have an hour's worth of material of different moments when i have had the incredible privilege to be in the room with amazing filmmakers french filmmakers and and discovered something and something happens and it's me in the background and uh, the amazing filmmaker and oftentimes an amazing journalist having a conversation and i get to be kind of the conduit through which their conversation is happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this specific, specific one is a moment that um, where I'm basically in the middle of an older gentleman who's a fantastic filmmaker, uh, meets a very young, attractive uh, journalist. And there's a moment that's not fully appropriate that happens between them, which is, which is pretty mild. But it's basically a moment when I am translating things that are not non-sexual right and uh (laughs) that are being said and i have to make a decision as to what am i doing in between these two people yeah and how do i handle myself yeah uh, when someone is being you know bordering on harassment basically but it's bordering it's bordering but it's it's not like you know it's it's the french way it's uh, french harassment okay so one thing though that was interesting to me is um and I just said we're short on time, so I shouldn't even ask this question, but I'm just so curious. I'm going to ask it anyway. You used the director's real name in the piece. You didn't have any concerns about that? You haven't heard from his people? There's been no lawsuit that shows up on your door? I mean, again, he didn't actually sexually harass, so in that sense, maybe it's fine. But I was surprised when I saw the real name of the of the actor or the director. Um I mean, it, it was a public event. It was a live event. Yeah. Um, the interview is actually online and filmed. And, yeah. And it really, um, I mean, there's something about it is quite innocent, but also terribly devious because it is quite innocent. Um, and it's part of what, I lived through this moment and, and that's one of the things, the gift that David Ford uh, gave me when he was listening to the pieces. What is this piece about? And this piece is not about this fantastic director. No. It's about me and it's about my complicity. And thinking in the moment and making some really tough calls in the moment and getting very creative in the moment. Yes, but it's also like it's a, this is a moment where uh, there's a certain blindness that I had also in that moment. And, and that it's about that blindness. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how you read the last line, but... Um, I see it as a judgment on myself as well as the audience, and I don't know that it it filters out. But basically, um, I think I get away with it because, A, I don't think he would mind. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think I'm portraying him in a bad light. 
And I think this is something that he does repeatedly and yeah. uh, that is how he interacts. And there is... I had a lot of pleasure performing him on stage, uh-huh. <laughs> especially this time around. I I uh, I, I did I did him, uh, and I really like kind of getting to that groove of of who he is as a person, who is a star maker, and who meets young women and has this thing that he wants to see happening, and which is something that has happened and has happened and has happened, and he wants it. And he's testing the water to see if it will happen. And yeah. Everyone was very happy with that strange moment. Everyone yeah. was very uh, complicitous in uh-huh. that strange moment. Uh-huh. Okay, well, I look forward to seeing that one. Are you doing that one anytime again Yes, soon? I will do it uh, in May, probably like uh, uh, April 29th. I can't do it April 29th. You have to do it in May. I'll April 30th. No, it has to be in May. Okay. We'll, we'll, we'll figure something Sorry. out. Okay. Yeah, you should be. At you should Marsh, fix your schedule around my So my the Marsh, it will be, I will be performing Interpret This at the Marsh, April 29th uh, or April 30th, uh, depending on which day uh, it okay. happens. Okay. All right. So since I can't go, everyone else can go April 29th or 30th at the Marsh. Okay. Uh, so speaking of everyone else, if you have any questions about performance, about my performance, her performance, performance in general, now would be the time to start queuing those up. I'm going to ask uh, for, for questions shortly if anyone has any. But so speaking of performance in general, um, I got a, a, um, an email this week. Someone had seen my show or at least a clip of my show. I don't know if they were actually saw, saw the show. Actually, I don't think they saw the show. They saw a clip of the show and they said, hey, your, uh, your show has inspired me to take my own writings and turn them into a show. Do you have any recommend, which I was completely flattered and touched by, but do you have any recommendations of how to get started? Right. And so my reaction was, you know, resources, places. And my reaction was what we've already talked about, which is I really just kind of drew in my past and my existing book and brought them together. I didn't I don't know which groups or I don't know, but I know that you're workshopping your show. So two part question. One is, what would you tell people in general who want to start getting into performance? One. And then two, um, presumably workshopping would be part of that. And what what does workshopping entail? So that's a much bigger question. Um, I mean, it depends what you're doing it and how you're doing it. Uh, the most basic level, just go to a karaoke a bar and <laughs> perform a song sure. and see how it feels. Uh-huh. Um, I hadn't thought of that advice. Yeah. Uh, Pat, ben- uh, Pam Benjamin uh, gave me that advice uh-huh. uh, years and years ago. She's a, a part of Mutiny Radio here. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, look at small venues, open, open and, and read something that you've written, torture your friends and have them listen to you. Uh, but uh, if you're serious about it um, and you want to play, there's really great classes in the Bay Area. The Marsh is great. There's uh, um, a whole bunch of, of teachers there. There's also uh, a class at uh, Stageworks. Um, I, 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 I don't want to misspell her, her last name. Martha, I think, is the person who teaches it. It used to be taught by Kamal Bell. Uh, so this, this oh, really? is a great class. Mm. Uh, and so there are classes where you can develop the material and get a feel for it. Um, and I, I mean, I, I, uh, yeah, I think this, these are great, um, great uh, sources of, uh, uh, of learning and experience and community and other people can give you feedback on your work. So I think that's, that's really great. Well, the one thing I did say, which I think, underscores everything that you're saying is I said to him, you know, it's not something that you can intellectualize. You need to do it. And I mean, of course there's plenty, you can intellectualize it in the background, plenty, all all you want. But in order, like you said, the first thing you said was go do karaoke 
or go do read in front of your friends or go you have to do it yeah. it's not just something you can think about or just visualize and it's, improv is fantastic yeah, yeah. and uh like uh, there's places in san francisco where you can drop in improv oh really uh there's one at that. fort mason uh, oh bay area theater no, not no, not bats it's like a, well bats is great they're not too. drop in they're not drop in, yeah. but uh, um, there's a Fort Mason has okay. a drop in class. Cool. And I think there's another one at Stage Works as mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. And just, you know, dabble. Just yeah. dabble and push the doors and see which one's going to open. Yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, and just have fun. Tell me a little bit more about, though, because I'm still curious about workshopping. So, um, what do you, in a workshop, are you basically working one on one with the workshopper or whatever? I don't know what the the name of the person is that you're workshopping with the coach, I guess the, the acting coach or whatever it is. And you're just kind of going through it and he or she is just giving you feedback or is it more structured? Uh, what does workshopping entail? So I can only talk about that in the context of uh, the class I've been taking with David Ford and I recommend him highly. Um, and, and I guess I do that a little bit also in, in how I teach myself, but it's like, there are moments in the creative process where a certain kind of feedback is helpful. And uh, when you start on a piece, all you want to really hear is, hey, how did that feel? And that's one of the questions that David Ford asks. So how does it feel? And then you want to ask yourself, how does it feel? And kind of, oh, that felt good. That felt interesting. Oh, that felt tense. And then build on your own feeling. So you want to start doing something and then start listening for the feeling. Uh, the classes with, that I'm taking, you're in the room with other storytellers. We're all kind of trying to develop our material. We bring in some raw thing that we've written the night before. Mm. And you just perform it. And then you get a little bit of feedback from yourself your classmates or and then your classmates and of course uh david uh, gives a lot of, of really interesting feedback sometimes the gift of this is about this this is about complicity um uh and um and then as you work more and you write more and you find what i, I would say happens is you find actual moments that you want to live in moments that are scenes that are moments that are going to be really entered in detail. It's the same when you do any kind of writing, the, the idea of scene and summary. What are the moments in time when you want to enter slow motion and when you want to be in that moment with your audience? And so you find these moments and then afterwards you might get some structural things of how to uh, shift them and order, organize them. And then there's that moment where David is like, okay, your writer hat is coming off and you are now going to be a performer. So stop trying to rewrite your piece. Stop trying to fiddle mm -hmm, with it. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. now you're going to memorize it. But then the goal is to memorize it, but then forget about that and perform it. And so that it. when you're performing it, you get to feel the emotions that are there and have the performer be able to give you some feedback on how to adapt it. Mm -hmm. And so you have the writer and then you have the structural engineer and then you really just want to have your emotion machine feel what it is to tell it on stage in front of little audiences yep. and bigger and bigger and bigger audiences. Yes. Eventually we want to get to stadiums. How do you know, <laughs> no. <laughs> how do you know when the story's ready, when the show is ready? Um, I, 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 I think you say like shows are uh, never ready, they're uh -huh. just abandoned. Uh -huh. uh, but uh, so when I performed at the Bravo piece that you played, um, 
that was my six minute that was my first time actually performing the six minute version and just doing this and I was okay um I don't know that I've memorized it I don't know that I have it but I'm about to step on the stage with this microphone which was a new thing I usually project uh, yeah. or try to but that wouldn't be possible for me in that space and so I'm going to have a microphone so I'm not going to be able to move I'm just going to be like this and what is going to happen and I just said to myself well you're just going to go there and you're just going to tell the story to the people in front of you and enter that space and that's how you know it's finished is when you step off the stage <laughs> and you know and you just did it and you went <sighs> right I did it I did it. Okay, that's good. That works. Okay, so we are basically out of time. I really wanted to talk about podcasting as well because you're a podcast producer and I selfishly wanted to just like, you know, get any information I could from you. We're not really going to be able to do that. So I'm going to have to have you on again to talk about that. But you do have, um, and we did mention that you had done, I just want to shout out the name of this. You did do an award-winning Returning Home, which you did produce, you produced for the Stanford Storytelling Project. And which won the Marine Corps Heritage Foundation's General Oliver P. Smith Award for local reporting. Um, and that, again, is about six Stanford students and alumni who had come back from different wars, Afghanistan and Iraq. And I listened to a little bit of that in preparation for today, and it was really uh, compelling. So check that out. Uh, but I did want to ask one little thing about podcasting uh, because you did say, because I asked you, you know, beforehand when I was preparing for today, if you were working on any podcasting things. And you said you had a project you couldn't go into detail about, but that you did have sort of a request related to, right? So I wanted to make sure you had a chance to make that request. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I'm just looking for stories from French people. I know you're about to go to France. Yes. Maybe uh, I'll bring some back for you. Exactly. So I'm looking for French uh, storytellers who have stories that happen to them. Uh, it's a podcast I'm working on. It's not my own. Uh, I'm just an editor on it. But basically, I'm looking for people who have um, experienced something that can bring wonder and help people discover French culture and um, maybe someone's gone on an adventure taken a risk started to do improv started to uh, uh, write a book about their adventures in uh, bathrooms and then turned them into a state show or... oh I know someone who's done that <laughs> but he's not French you're yeah. saying you want French people yeah not just French speakers you want actual French people talking about French or fluent uh, yeah. it's, it's okay if the person isn't uh, born in France but fully fluent allons-y <laughs> je peux parler non vraiment je parle assez bien c'est oui. pas, pas parfaitement mais c'est j'arrive à m'exprimer on peut en parler après euh, après <laughs> si ça te dit mais euh, yeah. bon super so, mais s'il y a aussi d'autres personnes qui font partie en de l'audience et qui entendent ce podcast et qui se disent mais moi j'ai une histoire il m'est arrivé quelque chose d'assez dingue ouais. et je veux la partager d'assez dingue euh... plutôt d'assez dingue ça c'est l'important oui. Ouais. oui, ce qu'il y a d'important, <laughs> c'est qu'il y a eu un changement, ouais. que ça a eu un, un impact sur, sur, sur ta vie. What's really important is that there was a change and there was an impact on your life and that story has brought you somewhere further along your journey. And, and we'll we want those stories. Others, others there with you as well. Exactly. On that note, I think that's a beautiful way to end. Um, even though, like I said, I had lots more to ask, but um, I do want to mention again dotell.com which is your uh, do tell do do tell do I'm reading it half the time when I read I still say it wrong do tell do.com I don't even know what I said <laughs> uh, which is story selling storytelling service company so if you need some help telling stories uh, check that out and Natasha will be more than happy to help you there 
Uh, also, I want to mention again, you, you mentioned that you're performing in the Fringe here in San Francisco. I don't think we said when. That's in September. And again, that's the full length, the hour length, You're Good for Nothing, I'll Milk the Cow Myself, which is not to be missed. Do you have a date for that yet? Is that Not yet, but I think okay. it's going to be around like the 14th of September because that's okay. when the Fringe is. Okay. And uh, so that's something to look forward to. And I'm praying for you because an hour, 20 minutes was daunting enough. I did 20 minutes. Okay. But now an hour is definitely like the next, the next level. And have you memorized the whole hour yet? Are you there I haven't yet? written it. Oh, you haven't written it yet? No. Oh, I was thinking you were further along. Okay. You've got your work cut out for you. Yeah, yeah exactly. But I'll have it finished by uh, like written as a piece by the end of May. Okay. Uh, and uh, and then I'll have the whole summer to... To workshop. It's going to be Eye of the Tiger. Uh-huh. I'm going to be like, how do I have the stamina to be on stage for uh, an hour? An hour, and yeah. And, and like feel and bring and feel and bring. Uh, yeah. It's going to be interesting. I'm going to be uh, carving up, running up hills, yes. down hills. <laughs> Having statues made in your honor afterwards. Chasing a chicken. Chasing a chicken. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but you also said you're going to have an understudy for that, right? So in case you For the chicken? No, yeah, for whatever. For whatever, no. Like I said, are you I'll be volunteering for you. to be the understudy? Sure, we can get a wig. I can do Perfect. that. Yeah, yeah, we'll talk. Like I said, okay, we'll talk. Uh, again, we also said already that you're performing at the Marsh again in June. What did we say? May? No, no, April. April 29th or thirtieth. But I also have in my notes that you were going to perform again in May or June. Is that the same one we're talking about? The April. Um, I I still have to book the time, and I'm I'm going to uh, ask the people at the Marsh if they will be kind enough to let me perform there so that I can um, experience the piece in front of an audience. The the full length one. Well, it's going to be chunks of twenty minutes. Uh huh. Okay. Uh, I haven't figured out if there's someone else who will let me try my to my hour long beforehand. Yeah. But I will try. I will look for it. Okay. It right. might have to be my living room or this awesome space. Or this awesome space. Uh, some of the word space studios is an awesome space. I bet. I bet that could happen. All right, Natasha. Thank you very much for being here today. This was very interesting and a lot of fun, and Thanks, I really Matthew. appreciate you being here. And like I said, we got to do it again because I have so many more questions for you. So, uh, thanks again. So that's all for today. Thanks again. Like I said, oops, I've got the camera still on you. Wait, I'm supposed to be talking. There we go. Okay, now now you're off. Now you can do whatever you want, and I have to pay attention here. Okay, that's all for today. Thanks again to my guest, performer and multimedia storyteller, Natasha Ruck. Thanks to Wordspace Studios for hosting me. They, again, are at wordspacestudios.com. Uh, next week, author Martha Grover will be here. And uh, thank you, as always, for watching and listening. If you like the show, which, of course, you did, Please share on social media and subscribe, rate, and review uh, wherever you happen to watch or listen. As I say over and over and over again, it's the only way the word gets out, and I really, really appreciate it. For more about me, my website is matthewfelix.com, uh, and information about me, my social media books, including my new one, Porcelain Travels, other podcasts, and all the rest can be found there. If you have any comments, ideas for the show, or just want to say hello, I would love to hear from you at felixonair at matthewfelix.com. Thanks again for watching and listening and have a great week.